1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the WFIU-WTIU newsroom. I'll be hosting the show alone this week. We've been recording the show remotely for the last few weeks and last few months to avoid the risk of spreading infection from COVID-19. And today we're going to be talking about the recent executions carried out in the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. We have five guests joining us today. Jody Madeira is an Indiana University Maurer School of Law professor. Adam Pinsker is a WFIU-WTIU news reporter and a media witness for the executions. Robert Dunham is the Death Penalty Information Center Executive Director. Monica Foster is Indiana Federal Community Defender's Chief Federal Defender. And Monica Vallette is a member a family member of the victims of Daniel Lee Daniel Lee was the first of the three inmates to be executed last week you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition and you can also send us questions there and you can send us questions for the show at news at public media org I'm uh, very happy to have quite uh, a, a very knowledgeable panel of guests today I want to start with Jody Madeira and ask Jody to sort of set the stage for us for what happened in Indiana last week. And, you know, why was it such a newsworthy event that we had these three executions in Terre
2: Haute? Sure. Thank you. Um, So it's been a very long road. Uh, It's been nearly two decades since federal executions resumed at the U.S. Penitentiary. And it wasn't just one execution. It was three. And we had a bit of drama actually getting to the execution in the first place. So we've had over the last 20 years, we've had um, fierce contests about what drugs to use during executions, including uh, difficulty getting drugs, contaminated drugs. um, And usually, you know, they replace the three drug lethal injection cocktail with a single drug. That's the uh, method that's preferred by the federal government. But the other drama that we had was just finding out how to execute in the first place. And so there's always been some controversy over the last 17 years between uh, the execution method um, used by the state that the inmate came from, and the federal government, and so that we had to resolve that question before we could even get to uh, the death chamber last week. And unfortunately, um, there were other questions as well, which included, you know, what we do with pending appeals, how we deal with um, U.S. Supreme Court jurisdiction versus um, DC Circuit Court of Appeals uh, jurisdiction. And so there's, there's many, many troubling issues um, that came up as a result of last week, but, um, and lots of drama as well.
1: Uh, Jody, there's going to be a, there's a fourth execution that's scheduled. Are some of these issues, have these issues been resolved? Do you think to everybody's satisfaction or will there be more issues that will come up before that execution can take place?
2: I believe that a lot of these issues are still lingering, so we've now settled the issue of um, whether we execute according to the federal government's method of execution or the state or the inmate state. Um, We we have chosen the federal government's method of execution, which is a single drug, pentobarbital. Um, But there's other claims that are still pending that were not resolved and were actually still pending when the Supreme Court overruled the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in the dead of night, two in the morning. Um, including whether these executions involving pentobarbital uh, suffocate the inmate, creating Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment claims, and also just what procedure we want to have for putting people to death is can the highest court in the in the land suddenly say yes, it's time when a, a circuit court of appeals had just upheld uh, an inmate's right to raise challenges hours before.
1: All right, Adam Pinsker's on with us, and Adam is a reporter, WFIU and WTIU, and he was a media witness. We're only going to have Adam for 10 or 15 minutes here, but Adam, I wanted you to describe the process as a media witness to what went on in Terre Haute. You know, what was that like for you?
3: Overwhelming and startling, to be totally honest, Um, and and like Jody was talking about with all the appeals playing out in, in different jurisdictions, we were told to show up two hours before the original execution time um, but ended up staying up for a good almost 24 hours before Daniel Lee who was first execution uh, that one was carried out but it's very methodical and the Bureau of Prisons obviously conducts it because it's federal so and the staff that they have in Terre Haute they're they're organizing the execution and carrying it out they are not from they're not based in Terre Haute they don't want they don't want anybody who is associated with that prison to be handling the execution. Just, I guess I had a concern of if they're too close to the condemned inmates. So they basically take us to the maximum security side of the prison, have us screened, put us back in the van and take us to what's known as a death chamber, which you cannot see from the highway. It is like a small red brick building. There's four or five different entrances. The one, one separate room for the uh, victim's families, one separate room for the uh, media witnesses, another room for the, the condemned inmate can pick up to six people to witness, and then there's a separate room where a couple Department of Justice people witness it. Uh, we there was I was one of eight media persons. We were escorted in there. In the case of Daniel Lee, we sat in the uh, which was the first execution. We sat in the witness room with the shades drawn for four hours, not knowing that uh, he was strapped down to the gurney the whole time. The bureau of Pri- there were two bureau of prison staffers with us, and they didn't tell us they did. They said they didn't know. Um, they were getting no information from the Department of Justice. So. Um the the shades went up, uh, and then immediately there's three technically four people in the execution chamber, two prisons officials, a US Marshal, and then the spiritual advisor for each inmate. And the um the prisons official reads the charges, what he's convicted for, turns uh asks them if he has any last words. He spoke and then the when he was done, they cut his mic. The prisons official asked the marshal to get onto a phone to see if there's any last minute stays and he's on the phone with like some D.O.J. command center. Uh, they say no. He says no. Um, mics are cut again and I can see the prisons person get on his like walkie-talkie and radio to the executioner who is um, right behind uh, it's a it looks like almost like I hate to say like a bathroom. It's a very plain it's all painted green inside. You have the gurney, and you have a slot uh, with like four tubes coming out, even though they only use one drug. Um, and then there's a, a one-way window uh, there, which I'm assuming the executioner is in that room. And the gentleman gets on his radio and says, go ahead. Um, it, it was – the first one was very difficult to watch. Um, it was like surreal. It was like something out of like a movie, but it's reality. Um, once the execution begins, uh, the inmate, each inmate had a, uh, one of those things that read your pulse that's attached to your finger. And uh, they finally told us that there's some sort of heart monitor on the wall because you just see the three men in there staring at the wall to see, you know, when. Um, and there's somebody else, there's Department of Justice officials looking at it from a different room, but uh, they monitor uh, the inmate's vitals as he's dying. And I, 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 know that in every one of them, they each took a breath. They each moved their heads. Um, Daniel Lee, about 15 minutes in moved his hands a bit. I don't know if that was just a, a reflex or what. And you slowly see them lose color. Um, they are all covered up in a sheet to their, to their neck basically. So you can't, uh, you only see their, um, uh, both their arms strapped down. They both have, um, uh, each IV is in each arm. In one case, they were using the top of their hands to find veins. And it was in the, I think it was the second inmate, Wesley Perky. Um, And, you know, it was, unfortunately, the third guy uh, he took, which is Dustin Honk, and it took him about a half hour. And at some point, they called the doctor in uh, to check. He just went in with a stethoscope, checked his heart. And his, and, and his neck and then um, walked out. And then a minute later, the Bureau of Prisons guy says, uh, inmate Honkin uh, has been declared dead at 830. Um, the execution's complete. They dropped the blinds and the two guards and prisons uh, media people escort us out. Mind you that the entire building is um, under guard. I mean, there's about maybe 30 or 40. They're like the tactical team that the bu- prisons people have out there with with." you know, high caliber weapons, um, you know, uh, and this is just a massive complex. It's it's a maximum security and medium security facility that's right on, on the Wabash River there. So when they take us back to the media center, and by the time we get there, they've already got a press release saying that the execution was carried out. And in um, Wesley Perky's case, the family agreed to talk to us uh, at the media center, and they were obviously very devastated because... You know, their, their daughter had been raped, and murdered by him. And so um, it was, um, it, it, it was just, it, it's just it took a long time for me to kind of process it because I'm in in the mode of reporting. But um, you know, I, I don't know if it's any worse to see someone die in a different manner or not. But um, it was just the way it was conducted was a very um, methodical and and uh, non emotional manner. Um, I hope um, I didn't kind of drone on.
1: No, it sounds very sobering, very sobering. Yeah. And I want, I want to ask uh, Monica Vallette. so um you you are a family member of the victims of Daniel Lee, so are, do you feel, you know, better or worse since this execution?
4: Thank you for hosting this, Bob. Um mm-hmm. you know, our family feels worse and we have said from it's been 21 years. Um, Since Daniel Lee was given this sentence, it's been 24 years since my aunt and eight-year-old cousin were murdered, and we have spoken out since the trial that this is not something we wanted. And when it was scheduled to go forward in December, we said as a family we wanted to be there um, to to speak out and say, this is not being done for us. It is not being done in our names because that's been repeatedly said. And then when it was rescheduled during the middle of a pandemic and we couldn't be there, I mean, honestly, not only are we very disappointed and sad about all of this happening the way that it did, but it is angering. You know, we are upset that over and over, this has been said that it's being done for my aunt and cousin, and it's being done for our family, and in the end, they completely dismissed us, left us out of it completely, and, and or wanted to put us at risk, and so we feel like we all have been re-traumatized and are looking at, you know, what other options, what can we do now what do we need to do now so this never happens to other family members because we've been left with no peace?
1: Well, Monica, how, how can you describe uh, to our listeners how you have sort of come to peace or how you came to peace with Daniel Lee and the fact that, you know, and taking the position that you didn't want him to be executed?
4: Well, That is a complicated answer, but I will, you know, I will say this. I don't feel like I have peace with what Daniel Lee did, but I want justice in our justice system more than I want peace for one individual. And so I'm not at peace with what happened. We lost our family members. You know, they were murdered and we didn't know where they were. And it is still painful. We are still grieving that loss, but we also didn't want Daniel Lee put to death because he was not the person who came up with this. He was not the person who murdered my eight year old cousin, Chevy Kehoe was, and that person was given life. And so to us as a family, we did not feel like that was a fair sentence. The judge didn't. The prosecutor didn't. We all were on the same page and said, please take this off the table at the trial, at the sentencing phase. They asked us as a family, did we want that taken off the table? And we said, yes, it wasn't fair. So those things are separate. Feeling like we want justice is different than whether or not we have peace. And I would say we don't. And I don't know that we ever will have peace.
1: All right. Thank you. That's Monica Villette, who's a family member of the victims of Daniel Lee, who was put to death in the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute uh, last week. Uh, we're talking with five guests today about the death penalty. If you have questions or comments, you can send us questions on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Adam Pinsker, I want to let you go, but I wondered if you had any, any final thoughts on your experience before you drop off the program.
3: I just wanted to kind of, as Monica mentioned um, in Daniel Lee's last words, last thing he said before they started to administer the lethal injection was uh, that he, again, this is his words, but had mentioned that there was some evidence um, in that case that he felt was not uh, admitted into the trial um, and uh, did, did may have changed the outcome, um, whether or not he, you know, he didn't really he did not take responsibility uh, for his crimes, but did mention that um, he felt like the DA even wanted to hear this evidence. So um, I just wanted to mention that. And I guess just in closing, the whole experience um, was, was the most difficult thing I've seen since I've been a journalist. And it took several days. I kept like replaying it in my mind over and over again, because it's such an impactful thing to watch. And um, it, it just took a while to get over. So
1: all right. And I'm
3: only a witness and can only imagine what it's like for the ones who had, you know, were affected by it. Uh, the victims, family members and uh, defendants, family members. So,
1: all right, Adam. Thanks a lot. That's Adam Pinsker from WFIUWTIU News. I want to ask Robert Dunham and Monica Foster now, just we're going to expand this conversation about the death penalty. Robert Dunham is with the Death Penalty Information Center. Monica Foster, Indiana Federal Community Defenders, Chief Federal Defender. Um, I know both of you have done a lot of work, spoken out a lot about the death penalty. So, you know, hearing what you've heard from the three guests previously, um, just You know, start by telling us, you know, is this a fair sentence? Should this sentence be still in the repertoire of how we um, deal with serious crimes? And Robert Dunham, I want to start with you.
5: Well, the Death Penalty Information Center doesn't take a position on whether there should or shouldn't be a death penalty. But if there's going to be one, it needs to be administered uh, in a process that is fair and even-handed and as divorced from uh, the political system as possible. Uh, And I think that's what was the most disturbing thing uh, about what happened over the course of the last week. Uh, If you haven't executed anybody, for 17 years. Uh, I think it's really critical that you make sure that you scrupulously adhere to the law to make sure that what you're going to do is lawful uh, and you take every precaution possible uh, to ensure that there aren't going to be any mistakes and there's a possibility uh, to correct them uh, if mistakes do occur. And what we saw here was Uh, The government selecting individuals for execution uh, based on what appeared to be political considerations. They were very serious murders. I mean, any time a child is killed, uh, that is very, very serious. Uh, But is that a traditional federal interest as opposed to a state interest? Uh, That's something that we leave to the states all the time. Uh, And so it it appeared that the cases were selected uh, for political reasons and to inflame the public as much as possible. And then three executions uh, in five days after doing nothing, uh, none for 17 years, uh, if you're interested in carefully administering uh, capital punishment to minimize the risk of error, that's a reckless way of doing it. And 28 corrections officials uh, told the government that last year, and they simply ignored it. And I think one of the things that's even more disturbing, Uh, is the manner in which the Department of Justice pursued these executions because they knew full well that there was still litigation on important issues uh, proceeding in these cases. Uh, And they set an execution schedule uh, with the execution starting less than a month from the time that the death warrant set the date, uh, ensuring that there was no way the trial courts were going to be able to resolve the issues. Uh, You knew right away there was going to be last minute litigation uh, because uh, that's the way the schedule was set up. And you went in right smack through the night, uh, and you ended up with two of the three people being executed after the date for the warrant had expired, uh, and in circumstances uh, in which you'd have to be a grade B movie villain to think that proper notice was provided. Uh, What happened was, uh, with Mr. Lee, um, he had a stay of execution uh, in place until around 7.15, he was executed by 8 o'clock, Uh, That means that they had 45 minutes in which to give new, correct legal notice. They never told the lawyers before they executed him. Uh, And you had a man who was strapped to the gurney, uh, literally getting lip service of notice, being told, uh, we've rescheduled your execution for now, uh, and we're going to kill you now. That is never something that uh, would be accepted in any other kind of litigation. And in something this serious, uh, we shouldn't stand for it. Is there any recourse? Well, certainly not for Mr. Lee, right. um, um, but um, the the remedies that are available would be disciplinary remedies uh, against the lawyers uh, and everyone who knew about this process. Um, I, I think that uh, you have to combine it with a bunch of other things uh, in the cases because similar misconduct uh, occurred. Uh, in Wesley Perky's case, uh, where there was a motion for stay of execution that was pending before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals uh, and had had been lodged in the court. um, When the stay was lifted by the lower court, the other appeal was still pending uh, and he was executed before the circuit could do anything about it. The last entry uh, in the circuit's docket uh, is that the motion for stay of execution is denied because it was rendered moot uh, because the prisoner had been executed.
1: Monica Foster, can you uh, respond to this?
6: Yeah, there's nothing that Rob Dunham said that I don't agree with wholeheartedly. Um, uh, These executions were set for political purposes and only political purposes. Um, I think it's real clear when you look at the list of persons selected by the quote unquote justice department, and I'm not suggesting that these that these uh, prisoners did not commit horrible horrible murders, and that we grieve with the surviving victims of those cases without question. But this list was so carefully curated by the so-called justice department. They picked four white guys, even though uh, the, the the majority of folks on death row um, are. Uh, persons of color, Uh, we've been making arguments about the disparate treatment of persons of color uh, in the execution of the death penalty for years, years and years and years. Uh, And the federal death penalty is no different. If you like chaos in government, um, you know, if that feels good and righteous to you, then you loved having three executions in a week. Um, Because this was set up from Jump Street to be a chaotic circus. Um, the fact that Danny Lee was strapped to a gurney for four hours while the Justice Department tried to figure out if, in fact, there was a stay of execution for him is, is terribly disheartening. Wesley Perky, a man who has a decades-long history of mental incompetence, mental uh, illness, was raising claims that he was incompetent to be executed that were never considered by any Court In the beginning, when his lawyers were trying to raise those issues, the Justice Department said that he was making those claims too early. And then at the end, when he was making the claims, they said that he was making them too late. And it appears that the Justice Department had evidence that was either not produced to Mr. Perky's lawyers or produced in such a late, untimely fashion that it was unable to be used that indeed showed that Mr. Perky was incompetent to be executed. This was nothing short of a federal circus. It was disgusting. And it was, um, it was just, you know, when, when Rob says that this isn't how we litigate things in the United States, he's absolutely right. But this is how they do it in China. This is how they do it in Saudi Arabia, in Libya. Is that what we are aspiring to? Because that's what we've become. Um, this was a very brutal week um, for our justice system.
1: When I Want to ask Jody Madeira to make a distinction between you know the federal system and the death penalty in the federal system and, and states. And as I understand it, states are states more often than the federal government do executions, correct?
2: Uh, yes, federal executions are actually extremely rare, and uh, for a federal execution to take place, a person, of course, has to be convicted of a federal crime, and they have to have gone through federal courts instead of state courts. Um, it's, it's interesting because there's you know, only a few real types of claims that you typically find on the federal level. Um, crimes against the United States that involve terrorism, crimes that involve the murder of a federal witness, um, crimes that occur on military bases. Um, involving federal employees, you know, there is, it's just a very small subset. Um, And what's a very compelling difference is that claims on the state level involve a whole other set of appeals. They go through the state level of of appeals and then the federal level of appeals. Whereas with the federal, it's uh, short circuited because you only get um, a a sort of truncated round of federal appeals. And so, of course, another key difference is that if you're put to death uh, on the state level, you could be subject to any one of several methods of execution, depending on your state. Now that we know uh, what this method is in the federal uh, on the federal level, it's going to be pentobarbital, which also raises serious Eighth Amendment claims.
1: So many years ago, I was involved with. Um, well, I was the editor of a newspaper, and there were eight newspapers in Indiana that did a series of stories that looked at the death penalty. Um, situation in Indiana, and I guess we could expand it to the federal level too. And we we entitled that series, um, Indiana's Other Lottery, The Death Penalty, because it seemed like people who got to death row, people who wound up being executed, there were a lot of places along the way where uh, with a a bit of different uh, personnel, perhaps, or a little bit, bit different luck. Um, that things would have been very different, and I wanted to ask uh, Robert Dunham, Monica Foster, a- and Jody to all comment on that. Is that a, a fair characterization of how the death penalty is administered in this in this country?
5: I think Robert, an abs- I think that's an absolutely fair um, uh, way of describing it. The single most important factor in whether somebody faces the death penalty isn't what they did, and it isn't necessarily even where they did it, but who the prosecutor is in that, um, in, in that locality. Uh, within states, uh, we see broad differences uh, in the way offenses uh, are prosecuted, whether they're sought capitally or not. Uh, and when we look at the federal system, in fact, half of all uh, federal death sentences are imposed from just three states. Uh, from Texas and uh, Missouri uh, and Virginia if if the system is supposed to be uh, selecting the worst of the worst cases from across the country uh, it 's unfathomable uh, to think that half of them uh, occur in uh, in just a tiny number of jurisdictions uh, and When we look across the country, uh, the death penalty actually uh, exists in only a very few number uh, of counties eighty five percent of The counties have nobody on death row. Uh, And um, what we see is that when you change prosecutors, you change death penalty policies. Uh, More than half of all the death sentences in the United States come from 1.2% of all the counties in the United States. Uh, So that tells us a lot. The prosecutor is what drives the death penalty. The second most important factor is who the defense lawyer is. Uh, and uh, a, a great lawyer doesn't necessarily uh, always win the case, uh, but without it, uh, you are much, much more likely to end up with the death penalty.
1: I once had a prosecutor in Monroe County tell me that he went to um, a prosecutor's attorney conference and they were talking about the death penalty. And one of the speakers said, if the prosecutor from Monroe County, Indiana would like to stand up and leave right now, that's fine because you would never get a death penalty. Um, conviction in Bloomington, Indiana. So, you know, it was, that said to me a lot, uh, just
6: that one little experience. Um, so- It's actually an expression amongst the, the death penalty bar that, um, that it's not, we don't kill the worst murderers. We kill the murderers with the worst lawyers. Um, and the idea that whether you are going to end up on death row and being executed has has so much to do with the lottery of who the government appoints to represent you it is very disturbing jody any response
1: to this
2: yes um i think that's absolutely true it's incredibly serendipitous and i also think that you know it's also based upon what happens with your case over the years um, so it depends on other factors such as does the prosecutor allow victims family members to have a say in what happens Does the victim's family want an execution? Do they push for it? um, I remember you know my my the bulk of my um research efforts on the death penalty have been tied to the McVeigh case and In that case there actually was a group of family members and survivors that went to the department of justice and said we want to see McVeigh die um, and so, you know, what do you do when they have a trauma reaction that might fade in five to six years, but they're being consulted by a prosecutor, you know, in, in the time after trial, which is pretty uh, short after the murder. And I just think you also have the mental resilience of the defendant um, who is sitting on death row. And you might have a defendant who might be innocent. They might uh, have claims that are worthy of being heard they might have a great chance to get off of death row, but they can't take it anymore, so they volunteer. And so I think there's other factors that the system creates that also should be considered in there as well.
1: Monica Vallette, you, you are a family member and you know, you already described to us that you don't feel like you were listened to were was were there any members, any family members that were arguing that Daniel Lee should die?
4: None that attended the trial, um, none that were there when all of the evidence um, and witnesses were talking. So I think, of course, we have a very large family and there are some people that don't care either way. They're like, this doesn't affect my life. I don't really care. But You know, my grandma, my mom, myself, the people who have been involved, were most involved with my aunt, were there. My mom was there every single day through this trial. You know, and since finding out all of the other things that weren't presented in court, you know, I, I think it is a hard place to be in. You're asking family members who are traumatized right after a crime what they think, which in our case, we said from the beginning, don't use the death penalty. But I don't think that our justice system really should be based on the opinions of traumatized family members, even though we are some of those family members. I think it should be a just and fair system, regardless of how we feel.
1: Where does the judge fit into all this? Because judges are, are normally the people who are... Um, invoking the sentence, where, where do they fit into this?
4: Um, The judge in our case um, was actually against the death penalty. He, until he died, this um, Daniel Lee's case, he said, disturbed him and kept him up. I um, wrote judge Isley at some point after and asked what we could do as a family. And he was a very kind person, you know, but it, in our case, it wasn't up. It was a federal crime. And so, Even though the judge, the prosecutor, the defense, the family, everybody was on the same page, when it went up to the attorney general, they came back and said, no, you have to keep the death penalty on the table.
1: Is this different in federal and state um, cases, Jody? Uh,
2: Yes, actually, it is. Um, So in federal cases, I think there is less of an opportunity perhaps for the victim's family to weigh in. On state cases, depending on the prosecutor, depending on uh, the victim's advocate and how effective that person is in working with the prosecutor, um, you might have a victim's family with tremendous input, or you might have a victim's family with very little input. Um, and I would also guess, you know, because the death penalty is political, um, prosecutors are elected. Uh, In certain areas, I think they feel like they're more likely to be reelected if they do have a higher number of death penalty cases and successful convictions. Um, If the victim's family is against the death penalty, that might diminish their say right there uh, on the state level.
1: And what about what about judges? Do they have leeway, more leeway in the in the state than a federal judge would?
2: I would say that they are also bound by many state states. Laws that are are mirror those on the federal level. So, if the jury votes for death, then the judge's reactions are are somewhat constrained. Um, the judge can declare that that there was something wrong with the trial, um, but that could happen also on the federal level as well. But I think that that ability varies across state laws. But again, I, I don't think there's much wiggle room once the jury votes to to put someone to death.
6: And, yeah, and we're not, in the federal yeah. system, the Justice Department really only cares about the victim's family if they support whatever the Justice Department's position is. So, for example, with um, Ms. Villette's family, they um, had filed a motion with the, ju- the a local Indianapolis federal judge who said that they did have a right to be there and to be to be at the execution and to be at the execution in a safe manner. And so the judge, the, the federal judge in Indianapolis issued a stay. But what happened is, is that the Justice Department then appealed the stay to the Seventh Circuit. And, and even though the Justice Department had imposed these execution dates, saying that the executions needed to be carried out for the victim's family members, the Justice Department, in the in the example of Mr. Lee's execution that Ms. Villette. Um, was so badly impacted by the Justice Department went to the Seventh Circuit and argued that the victim's family had no interest in the matter. And the Seventh Circuit agreed that the victim's family had no interest in the matter. And the United States Supreme Court upheld that. Um, you can best believe that had Mr. Lee's surviving um, family victim's family members and supportive of the death penalty they had him out there on front street doing interviews and cheering for what the government was doing it's a it's a sad situation
4: monica can, can i thank you i just wanted to thank you for recognizing that and pointing it out because that has been our experience and it has been horrible you know that so everybody was from the you know, staff at the prison when they were setting up arrangements were so nice. But as soon as we were concerned about our health, you know, my grandma is 81 and has congestive heart failure. And as soon as we started expressing our very valid concerns about where we're traveling from, you know, Spokane, Washington and Arkansas, both are on mask mandates. Both are have still having surging numbers. They stopped talking to us completely. And in fact, in the briefing with the Supreme Court called our concerns frivolous. And that word word will not leave our minds. It's like, wow, like, so are our lives. Frivolous has this been the case the whole time that we're only viewed as valuable as long as we're doing what they want us to do and behind what they want.
6: I, I'm so sorry for what your family went through, Monica. And there is an army of folks out here who do not believe that your concerns were frivolous, and do not believe your lives are frivolous. And I'm sorry that you were hurt by our so-called justice department. But please know that your your, your views on this are not frivolous.
5: Yeah, the, gov- the government may not have apologized, um, but the but the government owes. Uh, the family um, an apology. I, I thought it was a disgrace uh, in the manner in which uh, they were treated throughout uh, this, entire, um, this entire process. Uh, Bob, I wanted to, to step back for a second uh, and go, go back to your question on the role of judges. Uh, because as Jody was saying, uh, we have a federal system uh, that there really isn't a national policy on crime or a national policy on capital punishment. Uh, there are 50 state jurisdictions, uh, the DC, Puerto Rico, the territories and the U S and each has their own set of laws, uh, that govern, uh, criminal, uh, criminal justice. When it comes to judges, for the most part, uh, juries are the ultimate decision maker, but, um, in a significant number of states, uh, the judge has an opportunity to accept or reject uh, the jury's recommendation uh, of death. Uh, in in other states, um, uh, the judge um, is the ultimate uh, ultimate decision maker. Uh, in Indiana, if there is not a unanimous jury vote, uh, you you then will go to a judge to decide. So there are uh, judges have different roles in different states, but it's governed by state law. And that's part of the reason why uh, the U.S. system is is so chaotic when you look at it from above uh, and produces such arbitrary results.
1: We're talking about the death penalty. We're uh, just one week out from three um, federal inmates being executed in Terre Haute, Indiana. We're talking with four guests, four remaining guests on the program today. Jody Madera from the IU Maurer School of Law, Robert Dunham from the Death Penalty Information Center, Monica Foster, Indiana Federal Community Defenders, Chief Federal Defender, and Monica Vallette, who is a family member of one of the... Um, of a family member of victims of one of the inmates who was put to death. If you have any questions or comments for us on the last 10 to 12 minutes of the show, you can reach us on Twitter at noon edition. You can also send us questions to news at indiana org. I wanted to ask you Robert Dunham about some of the data that I saw on your website, because you have quite a bit of data that shows uh, death row prisoners by race death row prisoners by state uh, the number of exonerations by state, all sorts of different things. I and mean, what are some of the key statistics that you've found out that makes you, uh, things that you think that um, we might want to take a closer look at?
5: Well, everybody's worst fear is that the death penalty is going to execute somebody who is innocent. We want fairness across the board, uh, but uh, but we definitely do not want to kill people uh, who are who are innocent. Uh, the two biggest numbers that I think people need to be aware of is that there have been 1,522 executions uh, since the death penalty came back in the United States in the 1970s and 170 documented exonerations. Uh, and that means uh, that for every nine people who are executed, there's one person who has been exonerated. Uh, if, we, if we thought of this in, in different terms, uh, like landing a plane, if a plane crashed every 10 times, uh, we would be doing something about it to ensure that uh, the system worked better or we would just rip up the system altogether. Uh, But here in matters of life and death, uh, when we get to the end of a case, uh, the single most likely outcome of a capital case is that the conviction or death sentence has been overturned because it was unconstitutionally imposed. Uh, And when you reach the very tail end uh, for every nine executions, there's an innocent person who's been a person who's been found to be innocent. Uh, We estimate uh, that there are probably more than a hundred people who are actually innocent who are still on the nation's death row.
1: So is this a relatively recent uh, phenomenon? I know we've heard a lot about uh, DNA testing now. Has that really expanded the numbers of people who are found
5: innocent? Well, that's what's really interesting because the, the key to the DNA is not who it's exonerated, but what it tells us about the evidence. Uh, DNA is present in only about 15% of the innocence cases, uh, and an even smaller percent of the cases overall. But what it tells us is that every other piece of evidence that was used to convict was wrong. Uh, the eyewitness testimony was wrong. The testimony of, uh, Prison informants was wrong, uh, that there was something that was wrong with the forensic, other forensic evidence in the case, junk science and so forth. And in 20 percent of the cases, there are even false confessions that are either a a product of improper interrogation techniques uh, or a state witness uh, simply making things up. The big thing to remember is that just because DNA isn't present and you don't have the smoking gun of innocence uh, doesn't mean that all these errors didn't take place. Uh, and so when we look across the board at all the evidence in all of these cases, uh, it becomes increasingly increasingly frightening uh, because we can't have confidence uh, in, uh, uh, in, in the evidence. Uh, and we are certain that innocent people have been executed and continue to be executed, uh, and people are convicted and sentenced to death uh, based on uh, junk science, uh, false testimony, and eyewitness mistakes.
1: So, I know you've also got some data on your site, and I want to ask, uh, you know, all of our people uh, who are on the panel about um, death, the death penalty as a deterrent. I know there's some. Yeah. Been a lot of research done on that. So what is
5: it a deterrent to to serious crime? No, Uh, we did a 30 year study or I should say an analysis of 30 years of FBI data, Uh, because we uh, if the death penalty is a deterrent and it makes the public safer, that's a powerful reason to have it. Uh, And if it makes police officers safer, uh, that's another powerful reason to have it so we looked at 30 years worth of data Uh, we did 30 years because that's how much the fbi had uh, on the killings of police officers Uh, and what we found were a series of patterns Uh, first of all on average uh, murder rates were higher and killings of police officers occurred with greater frequency in states that had the death penalty as opposed to states that didn't have the death penalty Uh, we found that That remained the same over the course of time. Uh, We looked at uh, not just the national numbers, but state by state, uh, and we found that the states with the lowest murder rate tended to be the ones uh, without the death penalty. Uh, The states with the highest murder rates and the highest rates of killings of police officers tended to be death penalty states. It'll be nonsense to say that the death penalty causes more murder uh, and places police in jeopardy. Uh, But what it does tell us is uh, that murders drive the death penalty. The death penalty doesn't drive murders. You're more likely to have a death penalty if you're in a more highly punitive state in a state that has has more murders. Uh, But whether you have the death penalty or don't has nothing to do with whether murder rates are going to go up or down. Jody or Monica, yeah, yeah.
6: Monica, go ahead. Anecdotally, Mm -hmm. I've been representing persons um, charged with the death penalty and or convicted and sentenced to death for 37 years. I've never had a client that actually even knew there was a death penalty. Um, And that includes some fairly sophisticated. I mean, I represented a very sophisticated businessman in the Northeast who did not know there was a death penalty. Um, before he uh, committed the crime that he was ultimately convicted of. F- you know, for those of us who care about these things, we may find that um, really hard to believe, but that has certainly been my experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Jody, you wanna weigh
2: in? Uh, sure. I believe that even if there is a plausible argument, which I don't think there is based upon um, my co panelists answers, you know, and, it's, and that's well settled information, What kind of a deterrent is it when you get somebody on death row and keep them there for 20 years? Right. And so there's it's so expensive to execute someone. It's so traumatic to execute someone. It's so flawed as a process, you know, that basically you have a greater chance of dying in prison uh, than you do of actually getting to the death chamber.
1: What is it? What do the statistics show us about uh, racial breakdown when it comes to number of people on death row, number of people who are um, convicted of death in death penalty case, who are sentenced to death? Is there anything that we can glean from those statistics?
5: I think there are two important things that we can learn from it, uh, that there is discrimination and it occurs at two different levels. Uh, first of all, in, in the state systems uh, across the country, there are roughly the same number of African-Americans and white prisoners who are on death row. Uh, and uh, and that is far out of proportion to the way in which murders occur. Uh, the, the more uh, the stunning number uh, in the federal system uh, is that uh, about 60% of the people on federal death row are defendants of color. But what drives the system uh, is the race of the victim. Uh, about half of all murders in the United States involve, uh, involve white victims. 75% of executions involve white victims. And so there is a racial preference. Uh, prosecutors value the lives of victims differently. Uh, and because of the white preference, we see capital prosecutions far more frequently uh, in cases in which the victims are white. And then once you look at look at these cases based on the race of victim, you find that for each race of victim, uh, you're disproportionately likely to be sentenced to death if you are a defendant of
6: color.
1: Is that surprise uh, you, Jody, or you, Monica?
6: Not at all. Doesn't surprise me in the least. I've lived that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the conversations that you have to have with clients of color are deeply disturbing. I mean, you have to have a conversation with a client that tells that client of color, you are more likely to be sentenced to death and executed solely because of the color of your skin. And that is a conversation that we have with clients because that is the reality of the criminal justice system.
1: We only have two or three minutes to go, and I, I want to ask uh, Monica Vallette first about, you know, the, the death penalty, this case that involved your family, and the lasting impact it's going to have on you.
4: Um, the thing I would ask that people keep in mind is that aside from all of the other issues with the death penalty that we know about, A lot of what we have dealt with is understanding that when a person is given this sentence, that the families of the victim are also given this sentence, that we have been in prison right along with Daniel Lee all of these years because we had to listen to all of these different things that came up, All of the updates, all of the feeling like this was being done in our name, another human being is going to be killed in my name. That is a heavy burden to live with. And now a person has been killed in our name. And we have to live with that for the rest of our lives as a family. And we have to live with people coming up to us and saying, I bet you're so happy this happened and it's not, you know, making assumptions. And so it doesn't just affect us as a country and this the people who are in prison. It also affects family members. And it's something we can't ever get away from. And Very I would good. just people to yeah, consider that, you know.
1: Thank you. I wanted to ask, just, just turn to Robert Dunham for one last question comment is there is there any legislation that you would like to see is there is there any remedy in the courts for something that that you find particularly egregious from all the research and the data that you have
5: well we would need another hour to uh, to, to go through all of it we only that. have 1 minute so <laughs> um, th- there there are significant problems uh, I, I think that uh, reforms uh, if there's going to be a death penalty reforms need to be made to ensure that it's sought in only a very small, narrow uh, group of cases. Uh, You have to ensure that there is fair defense, uh, uh, accessibility for resources for experts. Prosecutors need to turn over their evidence. Uh, The exoneration cases, in capital cases, 85% involve police or prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, And I think that we need to include the death penalty uh, as an integral part Of uh, overall criminal legal reform in the United States. All right.
1: Thank you very much for summing that up for us. We are out of time. I want to thank our guests today, Jody Madeira, Adam Pinsker, Robert Dunham, Monica Foster, and Monica Vallette for being here with us. For our producers, Benta Boutier, John Bailey, and Mark Chilla, engineers Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob
0: Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation,